All right, well, today's message comes from a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 18, and uh, it's the story of Elijah and his encounter with the prophets of Baal uh, on Mount Carmel. And before we read the text, I'd like to share some of the backstory, kind of bring some context to it, and, and all the events that kind of lead up to that uh, monumental showdown. And up to this point, Israel had been a, a united Hebrew kingdom uh, during the reigns of David and Saul. Uh, but after Solomon dies, there's division in Israel. Who's going to reign over us as king? And uh, part of the, the nation was divided over who, who would rule over them as king. And they could never unify themselves over that issue. And there was a, basically a civil war that breaks out. And it is decided that at this point they can no longer be unified. And so the nation divides into two nations, two Hebrew nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And not only were these divisions along the lines of uh, politics and, and social issues, uh, the division occurred spiritually. There was a fracture spiritually uh, in the nation. Since the temple of God was the center of worship and that was located in Jerusalem, it made it difficult for, for the Israelites living in the north to travel into hostile territory to worship God at Jerusalem. So because of these hostilities, Israel's king Jeroboam decided that, you know, we're going to establish a new place of worship. We'll have places of worship throughout the northern kingdom. And he even appointed his own priesthood. It sounds like a very prudent idea. It sounds like a very good idea, but it wasn't a God idea. And, you know, that's the way it happens with us. Sometimes we have these ideas. We think it's a good idea, but it's not a God idea. And unfortunately, the actions taken by Jeroboam uh, leads the nation to apostasy. And Israel turns away from God. They begin to worship idols and false gods. As a result of their apostasy, God sends Israel prophet after prophet. Of course, some of them are Elisha, Elijah, Amos, and Hosea. And what, what their mission was, was to call the nation back to repentance, back to worshiping God. And instead of, of heeding the voices of these prophets God sent, they would harden their hearts and reject their message. Recently in our nation, we've, we've witnessed some pockets of revival and in our nation, and uh, it's a good thing. Christians responded to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I love it when a move of God begins out of prayer. It just shows there's some genuineness there. There's a hunger for God. And it's a healthy sign, but it's something that has to go across our nation. It just can't be a pocket here and a pocket there. And if we look at our nation from a, a moral and spiritual perspective, uh, we truly lack the desire for righteousness. We have a, a lack of a desire for righteousness. Instead, we embrace lawlessness and we embrace wickedness. And I'm not saying that we've passed this point of no return, because I don't feel like we're there yet. But God is calling our nation to repentance. And, and, and if we keep on plunging ourselves deeper into sin, deeper into the carnality of our sin, we are going to reap the rewards or the benefits of that, and it's not a good reward. Paul warns us about this danger in uh, Romans chapter 1. We'll start in verse 21. Because although they knew God, very important words. We're not talking about unbelievers here. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You know, clearly, just want to pause there. In our culture, 
we've come to this place where we take animal life and we equal it with human life. They are just as important in, our, in, our, in the eyes of our culture. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a pet. We have a pet. She stinks like any other pet. We enjoy her. We put up with her. But listen, Jesus isn't coming back for man's best friend. Jesus is coming back for man who's been redeemed, created in the image and likeness of God. And I'm not saying, again, you can't have a pet or you shouldn't have a pet. I'm just suggesting this, that animal life, while vital and important, is not equal to human life. Animals have not been created in the image and likeness of God, period. And yet we have this unhealthy fascination, and we get ourselves out of line with, with God's word. We start showing more and more compassion for animals, and we forget about human beings created in the image and likeness of God. And I'm just saying this, it is a symptom of something spiritual in our, in our nation, where we value animal life above human life. God gives us over to our sins. Therefore, in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness, in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's face it, in our nation, we worship the creation more than we worship the Creator. Put God first. Sounds great, doesn't it? We know it's biblical, but it's something that we don't really put into practice. We may say God is first, but our actions prove otherwise. It's, it's a culture of me, myself, and I. You know, our money might say the words of God we trust, but who are we fooling? It's a complete lie. Our trust is not in God. Our trust is in that dollar or in ourselves. Our nation doesn't revolve around God. It revolves around our selfish desires. And it's just another reminder that God is handing us over to our sin. He goes on to say this in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men commit with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their heir which was due. You know, our nation has a very, very difficult uh, and a dangerous position in this area of sexuality. Uh, we have difficulty calling a person male or female. I mean, I know this is not rocket science, but I'm just saying a man who is genetically born a male, no matter what alterations you make to that person, uh, whatever, whatever equipment needs to be removed or transitioned or whatever, that DNA of that person is still the same. It does not change. You can, you can have a person that's transitioned completely, test their DNA, and it will declare male or female regardless of what you see on the outside. It does not change. You know, we keep sowing so much perversion in this area of sexuality that we are going to reap the outcome of that perversion. And if we think things are bad now, they are going to get worse unless we repent. God is going to give us over to our sexual desires and we have not seen the end of this unless we repent. This is the kind of world we live in. We are sowing to perversion and we are going to reap it. We have not hit rock bottom in this issue, church. Verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all 
unrighteousness. And I believe this really gets down to where we are as a culture. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I've mentioned this before. We know we're in trouble when right is wrong and right and wrong is right. When good is evil and evil is good. God is allowing us to reap the benefits of our sin with a fuller measure. In hopes of this, we can say, well, why does God give us over to our sins? I mean, what, how, how, does that, how does that help things? The hope is this, that we will finally come to our senses. That we will sink so low into our sin that we say, this is the most disgusting place I've ever been. And never, ever want to lower ourselves to that position. That's why God gives us over to our sins. I don't know how far our culture, our nation has to fall. But that's why the church is so important. That's why we need to be close to God. Because there is a very distinct, uh, distinct uh, perspective between darkness and light. If a culture continues to spiral downward into darkness, into the pit of sin, and there's no contrast with the body of Christ, darkness seems very normal. I don't know if, if, again, how far we need to plunge into sin, but that's why we need to first pray for our, our, our nation, that we ourselves are close to God, and we intercede. We pray continually for our nation. See, like the northern kingdom of Israel, 1 Kings chapter 18, so is the body of Christ in America. We've become apathetic towards the presence of God. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless... Look at that word there. The falling away comes first, or apostasia. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. We translate that word as falling away. But the, the original Greek word is apostasia, which means apostasy. There will be a great falling away from the body of Christ, away from God, in the last days. Paul says a day is coming when there will be a great falling away, and I believe we are getting closer to that moment. A day is coming when Jesus is going to come back. He's going to roll back the veil between his world and this world. He's going to step back into this world, and he's going to call those home or who are ready themselves for his return. Will Jesus find a bride that is without spot or wrinkle, or is he going to find a bride that has been in bed with this world? The Holy Spirit is moving in our nation, drawing people towards repentance. Conviction power. Conviction is God's love, his mercy. But the Holy Spirit will never force you to repent. This fallen world is dead and it needs to experience resurrection. But the church in our world is struggling and it needs revival. As we read the story about Elijah and his encounter with the prophets of Baal, remember this has been about 50 or 60 years since Solomon has died and the nation has divided. Again, with that fracture, there's been a spiritual fracture that has taken place as well. The few places of worship that still exist were very rare in those days. And most of the places of worship, like altars, 
had been broken down because they had fallen into disrepair, because they'd been ignored, or in some places, just totally dismantled. So I'm going to read this, this story, and there's a couple key phrases I really want to focus on, and one in particular. But let's go through this. I know it's a familiar story, but just kind of follow through with it. Let's go start in verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter or waver between two opinions? If, it is, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bowls, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, cut it into pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare, it, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made, and so it was... Uh, at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried out and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out of them. Then when midday had passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no answer, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the prophets, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Pay attention to those words. He prepared the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the, the wood in order, cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four pots, of, of, four pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the ran, water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I, and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt sacrifice, 
and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell down on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Now Israel, or excuse me, Elijah starts off by asking a very important question. How long will you waver or falter between two opinions? And I think it's a valid question for us today. How long are we going to waver between two opinions? In other words, how long will we keep one foot in the world and one foot into the kingdom of God? How long will we waver between those two opinions? It reminds me of what Jesus said centuries later to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. I know your works, that you are neither hot or cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, you are wavering between two opinions. It's the same spiritual stance. And neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And I really believe this was what characterizes our spirituality and our nation currently. We are neither hot nor cold. Instead, we are lukewarm. We are wavering between two opinions. Jesus lays out the spiritual condition of the church in those two verses, in verses 15 and 16. And he offers this rebuke for its complacency. But listen to the grace he offers them as well. For people who are lukewarm, if you're between two opinions, he's offering this to us. In verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Listen, conviction is a wonderful thing. When you feel no conviction, you are in a very dangerous place. You are far, far away from God. But when you still feel conviction, you better cherish that. But you need to act upon that. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, this is the call, not just to feel conviction. Oh, man, I'm, I'm just terrible. I messed up. God, forgive me. No, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. God does not want us lukewarm, wavering between two opinions. It's a horrible place to be, and if you've been there, you know it. It's not a good place to be. Yet this is where many people fall spiritually. The Holy Spirit is supplying us with these ample amounts of conviction because he loves us. And if God didn't love us, he wouldn't supply that conviction to us. The Holy Spirit brings us conviction. It's proof of God's love. He, he still wants the relationship with us. He wants us to come back. It's like the, the story of the prodigal son. There, there's the plea of the father, continue to come back home. Listen to what Jesus says to this invitation. To those who are lukewarm, to those who are wavering between two opinions, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. Again, Jesus standing at the door of our hearts, knocking, pleading with us. If we're in an area of being lukewarm, he wants to revive us. He wants to be near us. He wants to empower us. But are we too preoccupied to answer that door? Maybe we're ignoring the Holy Spirit. Maybe, maybe this Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of our hearts. We know he's knocking. But maybe we're like, you know, it's just not a good time right now. I know I need to change, but I don't want to change yet. You know, I, st I still got some life, to do, some life to live. And let me tell you this. If you come to this place and you think, well, if I start living for God, life is all over. You are completely wrong. Life will just begin for you. Come back at a more convenient time. Church, read your Bible. When people have that attitude, it, it ends terribly for them. It never ends good. It's, never, it's a, always a tragic ending. God loves us both. But we can't ignore his passionate pleas.
Because when we do that, we just add another layer of skin, another layer of callousness. We harden ourselves to God's loving kindness, and what do we do then? We plunge deeper into our sin. God sent Elijah to prophesy to the northern kingdom to call them to repentance. Through Elijah, God is standing at the door. He's knocking on the door of their hearts. He's pleading with them, hey, return, come back. You know I mean, you're, you're wicked. You're, you're far away from God, but time's not up yet. Come back to God. And there's a verse in the story I really want us to concentrate on it and allow the Holy Spirit to really challenge us, and that is in verse 30. And he repaired the altar of the Lord. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. We don't know why the altar of the, the Lord at Mount Carmel had fallen into disrepair, why, but it, obviously it was abandoned. It at least appears to be partially dismantled, and it was not being used for its intended purpose. Here's the question. I'm really, I pray that the Holy Spirit will challenge you with it. I really feel like this is the question I'm supposed to ask, ask you this morning. Are you neglecting the altar of the Lord? Because that's where it begins. It's either through negligence or that you just ne ne negligence or just pure neglect. That's what it came down to for the people of Israel. They just stopped going to the altar, and the altar was broken down. It fell apart. Or they neglected the altar to the place that it was insignificant, and it was torn down for other reasons. There's some good stone right there. We could use it for a building. So are we neglecting the altar of the Lord? Neglecting the altar is a terrible sign. It's a terrible sign that makes us very aware that we've become lukewarm. See, we, we may get to this place where we can come to church, we have an appearance of righteousness, but below that is a very religious spirit. That it's just all on the front, but our hearts are far from God. You know, we may go to church, we may go through the motions, but it's been a long time, long time since the presence of, the God, of God was just filled in, in this place cause of this hardness towards the presence of God, the altar of the Lord falls into disrepair. And the altar throughout Scripture was not only limited to a place of sacrifice. It's the main place. That's the main, the main purpose of the altar is sacrifice, but it's not the only purpose of the altar. The altar was often built when a worshiper would encounter God. They would go through their life, they would have these divine encounters with God, and they would build an altar in that place to commemorate. And they would commemorate that place, and in their journey and in their, their life, they would go back to that altar where they had a divine interaction with God. And it's a reminder to us that it is a place where we seek God. It is a place where we meet with God. It's a place where we, we, are, we repent. Some of you have had an encounter with God around this altar. He met with you, but you've abandoned the altar. Church, it's time for us to humble ourselves, repair the altar of God in our lives. And listen, it's not always this, and please hear me. It's not always, well, that message wasn't for me. I mean, it was close, but you didn't get close enough, so I don't need to respond to the altar. And I think if that's your attitude towards the altar, you miss the whole purpose of the altar. The, the, the altar may have nothing to do with the message. The altar may be this, that it's just a place where I need to meet with God. I need to get, I'm going through life. It was a good message. It's not where I'm at, but I need an encounter with God. I'm dealing with some stuff. An altar is a place where we respond. We humble ourselves before the Lord. And, it, and it, what I believe what it does is this, that it, 
It allows a certain amount of sensitivity towards the Holy Spirit. Because let's face it, we live in a small community. We live in a very prideful community, a very religious community. We are prone to, to cover ourselves. And there's something about a public place of humbling ourselves that is so important. Since the altar at Mount Carmel was in disrepair, it meant the people were not going there to encounter God anymore. People were not going there to worship the Lord. They, were not, they weren't going to that place to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. While we don't make blood sacrifices and thank God for it, the blood of Jesus is sufficient. The altar has a place for us today. The altar in the Old Testament foreshadows something in the New Testament. A born-again believer in the New Covenant, the, the altar still has a place. It still plays a role in our lives spiritually. And I believe if you want to grow spiritually, if you want to mature spiritually, the altar is going to be key in that. It's a place of humility. Listen to what Paul writes. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body, says what? A living sacrifice. And if there's a sacrifice involved, it would imply an altar. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service, meaning true worship. Priestly service. Spiritual worship. Presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice is our worship to God. The altar for the New Testament believer isn't a place of furniture. It's not a stone feet. No, the altar for a New, a New Testament believer is right here. It's your heart. Paul goes on to say this, and do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now the altar in the Old Testament and New Testament, they look completely different, but yet there are so many similarities. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the altar is a place of consecration. It's where a place where we set ourselves apart for God and we dedicate ourselves to him. Often in the Old Testament, worshipers would bring a sacrifice, something that was symbolic of their life, something that they would lay on the altar and would sacrifice, and that sacrifice was a sign of surrender. You know, there wasn't too many options for a sacrifice. It, it, it had to die. And there's some symbolism there, some spiritual truth for us to really glean. How does that happen? Because we're to present ourselves a living sacrifice. Living sacrifices move. They live. They're alive. And the only way we can combat this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. And there's the key. I die daily. See, we must put ourselves on the altar of God daily. If Sunday is all you're doing that, it's not going to work for you. We must put something on the altar. It's a sacrifice. It means death. In our circumstances, it's us, ourselves, our lives. We are alive, and that's why we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. The problem is, again, the living sacrifice is that it's alive. And it's why we misdo this. We come back daily and present ourselves to God a living sacrifice. We die daily to self. Let's give you an example. If you have an anger issue and you come to the altar this morning, and you're like, Lord, I'm presenting this area of my life as a living sacrifice. I have anger issues. Do well for a couple days, and anger comes back. You know what you do? You, some of you get defeated, like, I, I thought I laid it down. No, you have to die daily. Daily. Go back to the altar. 
Doesn't mean you have to wait to Sunday to do it. Do it right there. Do it in your bedroom. Do it in your place of prayer. Wherever you, wherever you humble yourself before God and lay that anger on the altar again. Lord, I present this to you again, a living sacrifice. And you do this until it goes away. Now, I know that that doesn't seem very complicated because it's not complicated. The more you'll die to self, the more you'll live according to God's word. If you're born again, this is the key. If the Spirit of God dwells in you and you are dying to self, he will give life to that area where there's crucifixion, where there's death. There will be transformation. We go through the motions of Christianity, but we won't experience the power and the transforming power of of Christianity unless there is a sacrifice. Jesus made it very clear for this to happen. This must take place. I mean, we find this throughout his ministry. Luke 9, 23, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you're going to follow Jesus daily, take up your cross daily. You must die to self daily. Offer yourselves to God a living sacrifice daily. Let's face it, church, our desires, our flesh is very strong. And that's why it has to die. Sometimes if you're like me, it needs to die more than once a day. Satisfying the desires of our flesh will only keep us from becoming more like Jesus and we will conform to this world. The result in complacency is, is re, the result is complacency, it's religion, it's, it's riding the fence, it's being lukewarm, satisfied with talking about God, but rarely, if ever, experiencing God. In church, that shouldn't be it. If we really believe new birth is an experience, and it is, then it, it shouldn't be just, I had one experience with God and it's all over. No, we should experience God on a daily basis. It doesn't mean that the heavens part every day and we, angels are going up and down and we get all Holy Ghost goosebumps on us, whatever. It's more than that. I understand that. But we should have a daily walk with God, a daily experience of him. God doesn't just want to meet with us on a Sunday or Wednesday. We go back home, we come back. God has made the temple of God obsolete. Aren't you glad that we don't have to go to Jerusalem today? Because there is no temple there, just a wall left, right? And a mosque on top of it to meet with God. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If the altar in our lives falls into disrepair through neglect or or negligence, we will lose that urgency to offer ourselves daily as a living sacrifice. If we, if we don't even have that place we're going to or that time, we lose that urgency. Flesh is very strong. If the altar becomes a distant memory, it becomes a place of where we used to go. And that's a very dangerous place for any of us. The altar is a place that I used to go. What are we doing? We're wavering between two opinions time for us to rebuild the altar of the Lord in our lives again. It's time for us to reestablish a heart of worship, a heart of humility, a, a heart of sacrifice. Sacrifice, a sacrifice doesn't have rights. It doesn't have any opinions. A sacrifice is laid upon the altar. It can squeal, it can holler, whatever it wants, but it's going to meet an instant death. And for us, that is difficult because we're alive. But yet there is the key, dying daily to self. You know what? There are so many times in this world, there are so many times in my life where I'm like, I want to say this or I want to do that. 
but I just can't. Because I know if I do that, if I feed into that, there are going to be repercussions. And you know what? I, I can't do it so easy now, but if I give in here, I'm going to give in more and more each time. Isn't it amazing if someone gets you angry, if someone frustrates you, and you, you unleash that frustration on them? You may feel better, and you, but you may feel conviction at the same time. But if you don't fix that, the door is still open, there's still power there, and it comes back, and that, that opportunity seems like it presents itself quicker the next time. Church, this is why it's so important, so important we die daily. I'm just not going to do that. It's not the right thing to say. There are repercussions. That I, there, there are some things I don't want to reap. So what's an area of your life that needs to be left on the altar or placed upon the altar? Where, what is an area of your life that needs to be a living sacrifice? If you would present that area to your life, and present yourself as a living sacrifice, and there would be death. God could bring transformation. But instead, you have conformity. You're conforming to this world. Some of you I've never seen at the altar, ever. And, and you say, well, that's not a big deal. It, it is a big deal. Because like it or not, church attendance tells you a story about a person. Tells you a lot about them spiritually. It, it's not the... It's not the it's, I understand it, it's not the litmus test. It's not the end of it. But it does tell you something about that person. Serving tells you something. Uh, prayer time tells you something. Your, your study of God's word tells you something about that person. So yes, it, it does tell me something about a person. You either see no value in the altar, or the altar really doesn't have a place of significance in your life. And I see this, that it's a problem because some of you, well, I, I believe this is probably what happens. I, I don't need to do that here. But I'm telling you that there is value in humbling yourself in a public fashion. When I got saved, I, I, no one told me this, but I went to the altar every message. It didn't matter if the message pertained to me. I just felt I needed to get closer to God. And there was something about when I went to the altar and I humbled myself. And I didn't really care what anybody thought. I didn't really care if, why is he going to the altar again? Is he getting saved again? That's what it was, because I had pride, I had ego, and I had flesh, and it, it needed to die. And there was something that I knew getting up. It was the first time getting up out of my pew and going to the altar. I was nervous. I was like, oh, what are people going to think? But at the end of it, I got saved. I really didn't care what people thought. You know, part of that is, that's what keeps us in the world so, so deep, is we care about what people think. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but it is a big deal. It shows me that, that religion has some power in your life. It tells me that getting closer to God, maybe not, it's not as important as it should be to you. It tells me that you may be lukewarm. It tells me that you may be wavering between two opinions. It may tell me that to an extent of spirituality, you, you may be in a very dry place. Not every time. So I'm just challenging you. It's time to rebuild the altar in our lives. And it's not just here in this church. I mean beyond that. The altar is our heart, and wherever we're at, wherever we feel conviction, wherever we, we feel like, man, I'm in a place where I just need to seek God, the altar needs to be established in our lives. And it's time we get ourselves off the throne, put Jesus back in his rightful place. So today I'm asking you to listen to the Holy Spirit, listen to his pleas, listen to his voice. If he's knocking, then answer the door. Rebuild the altar in your life. Offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. 